All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. We can fish if we want to. We can leave your friends behind because your friends don't fish. And if they don't fish, well, they're no friends of mine. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin coming to you from the Inventive Fishing Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. And I have got a great show for you today. We're going to kick things off today with a fantastic conversation with a legendary angler. That's right. I have got the one, the only George Povaromo on the Rodcast today. And I'm sure we're going to get not only some great fishing stories, but some great fishing advice today, seeing as how Mr. Povaromo is one of the most renowned anglers in the world and has been dedicated to angler education throughout his career. And if getting pro caliber advice from George Povaromo isn't enough for you, on this week's episode, you'll also get professor caliber advice about my top 10 trolling lures for tuna. I'll also talk in depth and regrettably look at Kentucky Vintage Bourbon. Hey, quick pop quiz. How many species of tuna are there? Now, if you said anything other than 15, you're wrong. The 15 tuna that we all want to target? Well, there's Chicken of the Sea, Starkist, Bumblebee. Ha <laughs> ha, seriously, not, not the canned stuff, the good stuff out there swimming around. The 15 species of target tuna are... Albacore, Big Eye, Blackfin, Black Skipjack, Bluefin, Bonitas, Dogtooth, Kawakawa, which are known as mackerel tuna in Australia, Little Tuni, which are also known as False Albacore, Longtail, Skipjack, and Yellowfin. Well, that's 12 of them. And the other three, I'm almost hesitant to include, even though technically they're tunas, because they're generally so small that anglers don't intentionally target them. And these are the frigate tuna, the bullet tuna, and the slender tuna. And that's them. And now I'm out of tuna. Hey, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. You can also email me at sid at inventafishing.com or use the comment option on any of the platforms through which you've accessed the Rodcast if you have an opinion you'd like to deliver to me. So with that, let's get at it. Oh boy, have we got a treat on the Rodcast today. We have got legendary angler, TV host, writer, and esteemed seminar leader George Povaromo in the inshore offshore studio today. Now, George Povaromo has been a lifelong angler who was recognized back in 1983 when he was just 23 years old as one of the top eight anglers in the country. He's been writing for Saltwater Sportsman magazine since 1983, and that's the oldest and most widely distributed sport fishing magazine in the United States. And I got to say that one of my biggest personal thrills in my own career was the first time one of my articles appeared in Saltwater Sportsman, right alongside Povaromo's Tackle and Tactics column. Povaromo is probably one of, if not the most knowledgeable saltwater anglers out there, and just the range of the articles he's written for that magazine alone over these last 39 years stands as testament to that expertise. He's also renowned for producing and hosting 
of the immensely popular Saltwater Sportsman National Seminar Series, the nation's longest running and most successful educational course on saltwater recreational fishing. And if I'm not mistaken, this year marks the 35th year of the seminar series. And yeah, there are those who follow the summer seminar series like deadheads used to follow the Grateful Dead. It's just too much of a mouthful to say Pomeromo heads. More than 140,000 uh, more than 140,000 anglers have attended the seminars, and the series has also been broadcast as a 13-episode nationally televised series, which are also available on the George Povaromo TV network on YouTube. In addition, Povaromo is the producer and host of the incredibly popular nationally televised series, George Povaromo's World of Saltwater Fishing which airs on the Discovery Channel. It had been on ESPN versus an NBC Sports before Discovery picked it up. It is one of the best fishing television shows of all time, if I might editorialize. The show's been airing for 22 years now, which is impressive as hell, given that MASH lasted 11. Throughout the show, Poveromo has introduced us to his Mako 34 center console, the Mark VI, which should earn its own Hollywood star, as a vehicle personality as popular as Kit the Knight Rider, the General Lee, the Batmobile, the Back to the Future DeLorean, or Herbie the Love Bug. Porvoromo is also a vocal advocate for fisheries and habitat conservation and serves as the offshore spokesperson for the Florida Coastal Conservation Association. He serves on the board of Fish Florida, a nonprofit organization which helps people, especially children, learn about fishing and Florida's environment. To say that George Povaromo is anything less than a rock star in the world of fishing would be an understatement. And so I am thrilled to be able to talk with him today. George, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Well, I appreciate being here. And I, I definitely have to tell you that if I ever decide to run for political office, I'm hiring you as my PR manager. We win in a landslide. <laughs> you got it. Love to do it. I think you'd make a great political officer. I think our fisheries policies would all be cleaned up. Yeah we, yeah, we might have some clean water for a change. That's you never right. Know. That is exactly right. All right, so we usually begin our conversation on the Rodcast by asking guests about their angling origin story. So let's begin there. How did fishing become part of your life, and when and how were you able to parlay what is clearly a gargantuan passion into such a hugely successful career? Well, it all started with my, my dad. My dad was a dentist in Bay Harbor Islands, which is Miami Beach. And he loved to fish. <clears throat> that was his passion. And uh, he was nicknamed the fishing dentist because his spare time he would fish. And I remember uh, my earliest, actually, say memories go back to when I'm around six years old. He used to take me uh, up to the little seawall on uh, Biscayne Bay. And we kept these little tiny little snappers and grunts. And it just got in my blood. It was from that point on, it was just a major addiction. And all I wanted to do was fish. And throughout the years, there was never anything that I wanted to do other than fish. I was never into any kind of uh, junior high, high school sports. None of that. I, I did like uh, stock cars and go-kart racing. I raced, raced go-karts for a while, never got to stock cars, but um, I just fished all the time. And every waking moment or spare moment I had, I fished. So it, it would go to his credit. And ironically, he and I really, I'm the only ones who really got that fishing, passion, uh, genetics in the family, which was crazy. But uh, it all started with him going way, way back. That's great. We hear so many stories about dads and moms being the influence on, on anglers, and particularly now as the angling community is growing, the need for mothers and fathers to continue to introduce kids to, to fishing. So 
In a minute, I want to talk about the Mark VI. And I know you get asked this all the time, and I've seen your responses on your webpage. So I apologize for asking a question you're probably tired of. But I think there's still some interest, particularly for those newer to the Pogoromo fan club. Tell us about the George Mark and the George Mark Melanie and the name of the Mark VI. Well, my dad had a thing when he was when he would have a boat and we name it after his kids. And then it was the uh, the George Mark, Mark being my younger brother. Then my sister had come along it was a George Mark Melanie. And then it started a George Mark Melanie, too. So by the time that I was able to trailer a, a boat, 16 years old, had the driver's license. And it was, I think, uh, when I was 17, we uh, got our first uh, Mako, a 23 at the time. So we're deciding what we want to name it. And it just was, I thought, just dumb having everybody's name on it. And so really the one in the family who really hated fishing with a passion was my brother, Mark. So we said, well, let's name this after him, shorten up a little bit. So it was the Mark and it was the Mark five at the time it was my uh, dad's fifth boat. And then in 1979, he had sold that 23 Mako when Mako came out with a 25 center console. And that was the Mark VI. And, and at that point in time, I was pretty much fishing with my buddies and we were trailering the boat all over doing tournaments. So four years later, when uh, the boat was upgraded, I looked at that. I said, we did so well with that boat and had so many fantastic uh, catches. We did a lot of tournament fishing, did super well with these tournaments. I said, I'm not going to change that number. That's a lucky number. So from that point on, from 1979 to current, the boat name has never changed. It was always the Mark VI, and I won't change it for the luck reasons. And throughout the years, you sort of get a little bit, all right, Mark VI, we're going to do another boat. What do we do differently? I mean, people don't even know what that Roman numerals are anymore. And uh, so I said, well, let's, I told the sign graphics guy, let's sort of maybe change it one year. Let's go Mark and let's spell six out. Let's be different. So he called me, he says, come to the shop. I've got a little graphic. I want to show you. If you approve it, we're going to do the boat. So I show up and I walk in the office and he holds this graphic up. And from a distance, it looked like it said more sex. And I said, wow, we got to, we got to cut that one off. People would think I'm going through a wicked midlife crisis. Let's pull the Roman numerals back out and dust them off and put them on. And, and so it's always remained the Mark VI from that point on from a love standpoint. I don't want to change. Not that I'm superstitious or anything like that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, I was looking at the pictures of the history of the Mark VI and that, that, um, that 1979, the first Mark VI, that 25 <laughs> center console, man, that boat had a lot of teak on it. Um, you uh, basically since, uh, I think it was uh, 96 was when you upgraded to uh, the 26 Mako with the, or that was the 28 with the twin Evan Roods. And you've upgraded pretty much every year or every other year since then. Now you're running a Mako 334 with mm -hmm. Trip Mark Verados. Tell us about the loyalty to Mako there, too. That is uh, really, when you think about that, you're in the industry, and you, you know about as well as anybody that to be with a company that long, and, and if you even turn the hands of time back, w w I was, wasn't even in the industry at the time. You know, you, my dad bought the first Mako in 1977 because I pestered him, let's get a Mako. He wanted to go the Aquasport route because his friend Bob Hughes was also an Aquasport dealer, and I wanted a Mako. But so that goes back to 1977 i've got in the industry i came aboard with saltwater sportsman in 1983 and to have them as a sponsor throughout my base my whole career 
and have a Mako before that is really, you know, it's mind boggling. And you go back beyond that, like pen reels. That's the only reels my dad would ever fish when we went to buy reels. Oh, you're buying, we're buying pen. You're not going to buy this junk. You buy pen for sure. So even before he got involved in the industry, it was all pen reels. So, uh, and, and pen's been with me you know, forever too, but the Mako legacy is, is really something else. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it just to think well, one day when I do retire and have been able to do it with one boat company, Mako is, is pretty amazing. That is fantastic. I, you know, the Mark Six is so much a part of your angling persona. It's almost like Fonz's leather jacket. We just <laughs> expect you to be on that boat, right? And that the new boat is so drool worthy. I think I heard you say, or I read that you think it runs the best around 4,600 RPMs at about 51 miles an hour. I got to say, in today's fuel prices, that sounds terrifying because there's no way you're getting more than a gallon to the mile, are you? And what do you got, a 300-gallon tank? That's a lot of yeah. cheeseburgers there, George. Yeah. Well, what you do is you before you start in the morning, you know, you make sure everything's all set before you leave the inlet. Then you take a roll of like a silver duct tape and you strip off about three inches of silver duct tape and just put it over the fuel consumption gauge. You just don't look at it. <laughs> That's... You want to be happy out there. You want to be depressed. <laughs> It's, it's just a magnificent boat. And there are a million other things I'd like to ask about the Mark VI because there's a ton of custom rigging on that boat. But in the essence of time and trying to avoid my habit of geeking out about boat rigging, tell us about some of the custom rigging on the Mark VI that you're most proud of. And if you would, could you also talk, since we talked about dedication to Mako, talk about your dedication to Lee rod holders and outriggers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was just going to bring that up. The customization of the rigging is... You know, I had the boat set up for my style of fishing. I still love offshore trolling. I really do. And I do a ton of live baiting. So the boat had to complement both avenues of that. And even going way back. And here's another thing. When we started our earlier boats, Lee's tackle was and still is the premier quality uh, outriggers and rod holders that they they are the industry standard they always have been so every boat we bring we made a point to put the lee rod holders we'll put the lee you know outriggers on anything lee because nothing goes wrong with them they don't start chipping or powder coating comes off or whatever and they take the abuses of being offshore in these center consoles and you know it gets nasty offshore so Really, the boat is set up for, for trolling. I have the Lee um, outriggers on them, the uh, the 18-footers, the carbon fiber poles, which are lightweight, plus I have a center rigger. Each outrigger is rigged to troll two baits. So I could fish, in essence, a total of six baits off my riggers alone. And then, of course, you have your flat line. So you could take this center console, and I, I have done this with the 28s as well, and when they make all the 26, you could put a major bait spread out there all spread apart and really make that swath of water behind the boat look attractive and then for drifting we have a, a whole number of the lee of rod holders all the way around the boat so when we drift uh we could place rods from the bow all the way to stern and in between and and the ones in the bow and the one in the sterns are swivel rod holders so we could turn those to wherever we need to do and uh other setups on there, we do a lot of live baiting. So we uh, had gone with the uh, hooker uh, live well uh, systems on that boat, which are just, you know, they're, they're bulletproof. They're, they're, a, they're a sump. They hold the water. There's never any chance of sucking in air and, and stopping the flow. You could adjust the flows of them. And we've got that. 
the SIMRAD electronic packages that are set to do, you know, we could read way out in the middle of the, of the stream in the bottom. The machines could read down about uh, 12,000 feet. And it, it, it's just everything is there to help you look for fish, to analyze the water column, the bottom, any bait. And then whatever you are doing at the time, trolling, you're set to take full advantage or live baiting. I have electric uh, outlets in the, in the bow and in the back for when we kite fish. We could fish, you know, two kites easily off the boat. So it's just really set up to, to handle the style of fishing that, that I favor the most. Fantastic. All right. One last mark question. Tell me about sure. the shallow, shallow water mark. And the shallow water mark, because we do, you know, I grew up, uh, cut my early teeth in, in North Biscayne Bay fishing for sea trout. Well, my dad, we had a little bay boat. We would go out and we would catch trout, you know, some snook, some tarp. And so I cut my teeth there. And then with the television series to cater to the full audience, we do, you know, inshore shoots as well. So we have the smaller Mako. It's a 21 light tackle skiff. And, um, you know, we named that the shallow water mark because that's exactly what we use it for any shallow water shoots. Or if we have a, uh, a fun day of fishing and we want to do something in the bay and or go night fishing for snook, you just bring that out. And I can tell you right now, that's a hell of a lot easier to wash down than the big one. You know, you can put that boat away in 45 minutes, the big one, 45 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're both beautiful boats. So let's move away from the boats for a second, but clearly we're not avoiding product placement today. I do notice that you're an Ingle cooler guy. So I do want to give a quick shout out to our friend, Mike Dixon and the crew at Ingle is the amazing stuff they do with that company. Let's talk about media for a minute before I start tapping you for some pro advice about fishing and given your career in fishing media, including your writing for print magazines, the photographs you take, the television show, the seminars, and now you have a very robust social media presence we know that content creation is central to just about everything these days. And that's one of the hardest parts about content creation is coming up with new, fresh subjects. You seem to have an endless ability to come up with topics for your content. How on earth do you develop ideas for every column, every article, every social media post? There's just so much of it out there. If you fish a ton and that's what you do, there are so many different angles uh, of techniques are evolving. There's so many ways you could do an angle, say, just for striped bass to pick a northern or mid-Atlantic fish from trolling for the uh, trophy bass to live lining eels to chunking for them. And there's, you know, you get some of these cutting edge uh, pros in the area that are always trying to push the envelope, refine these techniques, try to get more bites or to try to increase their chances of catching trophy fish. There's always these subtleties. And I've always said that these subtleties are really the big things that, that people want to know because basically whatever we do, like if we say we're trolling for Mahi, for example, all right, it's very basic in its concept to throw baits behind a boat and you troll. Everybody knows that. But what are we doing when I say we, the people who are more experienced that are trying to compete with these other boats to try to get a few more fish in your boat when things are tough? What are we doing differently to help us get that advantage? And that's what I write a, a lot about, too. And it, it's, it's really the subtleties that are the big things and the techniques, the different ways you could go after species. So I was never, ever at a loss for what I want to write or what I'd like to cover for a technique. It's, you know, like the sport and like you said, media in itself, everything is so ever changing. And, you know, you just 
try to, you know, we've gone so lighter with leaders now. If, you, if, if people knew what we used for leaders 20 years ago, they said, no way in the world you're ever going to get a fish on, on leaders that light. But you've got fluorocarbon. You have circle hooks now that help you get away with those light leaders. A well-set circle hook, the eye of the circle hook is on the outside of the fish's mouth. So you could go with a lighter leader. There's no chance of the teeth wearing through a light leader. Now there's ways to cheat the system out there. Glad you brought that up because that you're actually anticipating my next question, which was <laughs> over your career, what have been some of the most exciting changes you've seen in terms of how we fish, the tackle we use, the species we target, and, and so on? So beyond leaders and circle hooks, what are some of the big changes that are that are on your mind? Oh, the changes is to because our fisheries are so pressured now, um, and 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 they get hit with everything in the world when these migratory fish are coming in or the bottom fish you're dropping on wrecks or trying to get snook and inlets and it's really going lighter with with the lighter tackle the lighter lines the smaller stronger hooks it, it's just scaling down so i would say the big thing is how everything has not only allowed you to scale down but to fortify your chance of getting these fish like i mentioned with leaders fluorocarbon some people say, well, fluorocarbon, or that selling point is it's 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 hard for fish to see in clear water. But what if you're in tannic water? That doesn't make a difference, but it does. It has a harder outer shell, more abrasion resistance. So you could fish that in, in, in dirty water and scale down a little on leader side and still have the ability to beat a big fish because the strength is there. You look for fluorocarbon for the abrasion properties. And just everything has been scaling down. I, I'd say from an angling standpoint, that's, that's the biggie right there. I mean, go back to offshore fishing. I remember we run to the Bahamas to go for the elephants in the channel. We used to go out there at 50 internationals and all that. Now we got these little pen 16s. We fill it up with, uh, you know, 50 pound, you know, mono on that. So you have a real small manageable lightweight outfit. You don't get tired fishing or fighting fish on it. It's just, it's just been evolution and what's some of the things you do to, to, to stay in the game and, you know, be competitive and, and take fish home to eat or whatever. Yeah. I, I love hearing all that. And it, you know, it just reminds me how much the changes in the technology, you know, the chemical makeup of a fluorocarbon or the, you know, the introduction of two speed reels, you know, that, that, that tech evolution is always just affecting how we're fishing. So, Similarly to, to that question, you've also witnessed a lot of changes in our fisheries. You just mentioned the pressure on our fish, fisheries. Could you give us your perspective on what's happened to our fisheries, particularly here in Florida and across the U.S. and globally, and what we as anglers should be doing? Uh, sure. What's happening to fisheries is we're all responsible to a certain degree. Me for writing and, and promoting the great sport, you as well, and you have more people in the sport now than you ever had before. And that, and that puts the pressure on fish stocks that are nowhere near what they used to be 40 years ago or, you know, before. So it's, you know, you have like in our state uh, so far, uh, FWC, they, they manage these fish to do, they're doing a good job. They have the, the bag limits, they have the size limits now. They close certain species during the spawn, which is good. So we're, we're, the whole goal is to keep these stocks at uh, sustainable levels uh, so we could partic participate as well as future generations. So we're doing well there. But the big issue that, you know, if you're in Florida and probably elsewhere is water quality. And I serve on a reef committee 
to say, trying to figure out what we're going to do to help save our South Florida reefs. And I don't know if you knew this, but from uh, Fort Pierce down beyond Miami, only 2% of our coral reefs are alive. 98% are dead. And for a number of different reasons, you have the warming water temperatures that's killing the corals. You have more acidic levels in the water and that's killing the coral. And my, one of my big arguments is that this all starts way inland. You go 30 miles in to these freshwater canals and lakes. And what happens, you have old septic systems instead of sewage tanks on these homes that are in the water, the old septic systems leak into these canals. When I grew up fishing on the banks of the Biscayne River Canal for bass, when they would trim the hedges or the weeds, a barge would come down and it would manually chop them all down, pile them on another barge. And that's how they would keep it nice and clean. In recent times, they come, they spray chemicals. You see barges come down just spraying both sides of the banks with chemicals that's killing all the weeds. It's killing any kind of grass in there. And what happens with these freshwater canals, they get through dams into, in our case, Biscayne Bay. And you have all the septic uh, pollution. You have all these chemicals. It has killed so many of the grasses in Biscayne Bay where we grew up. It's mud there now. And eventually the outgoing tides take this over those reefs and it helps contribute to what's going on on our reefs. So one of our big issues, we're managing our fisheries good here in Florida, but the big deal is our water quality. We have had just terrible water quality and, and, and principles here and Florida being a major tourism driven state, people come here for the beaches. They come here for the water. They come here to fish. And, um, you know, it's just too many people here. Yeah. You know, as you're saying that I'm, you know, I'm reminded and I'm not sure if you're going to remember this or not, but several years ago, you and I were talking, I don't know if it was at ICAST or the Miami boat show or where, and you said something that really stuck with me about the kind, that kind of water quality and about the fisheries. And you told me something and I quote you over and over again in my classes at the university of Florida and talks I give and casual conversation and it's something that really changed how I think not only about fishing, but about a lot of other things. And it was a huge life lesson moment for me. We were talking about these exact issues and also the power of nostalgia for the good old days. And you said, remember that today, the way things are today are always someone's glory days. And that really stuck with me about the relativity of what we think of as the moment when the fishing's good or bad. And that even though you and I look at the water quality and think of it as, you know, really terrible and the fishing pressure is too high, that there are kids right now who are building their, their personalities around fishing as this is the good old days. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that kind of philosophical thinking provides perspective to the very state of fishing. Yeah, and it's funny you bring that up because we were out fishing yesterday for a fun day of fishing out of South Florida, and we were talking about, you know, uh, you know how what we were talking about the water quality issues and and this and, and that and uh, and then we started thinking about going way back to what our, our fathers would say, man, a fishing wasn't anywhere near what the heck it used to be back in the day. It was crazy; you could throw anything out there and catch fish. But then you were into the sport and every time you go out, it was amazing. And you fast forward to where, let's say I am now, you look back, those were the glory days. But to our fathers who saw it before that, that was already going downhill. And where we were at right now is like you said, 
you know, we're like our dads. We're complaining about what it used to be like out there. And then the new generation is experienced. They're thinking it's the greatest thing in the world. And when they get old, half kids are going to say, my God, how this thing is. It's, 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 I guess it's all generational. Absolutely. But we'd also like to get to the point where the next generation is saying it's great because it is as great as it used to be at one point or another, too. It's, it's all it's all the wall. Uh, the big deal is the water quality. You get that cleaned up. Uh, the, the fisheries are being managed. Uh, well, there's, of course, there's certain uh, species that need even more protection and you get a little bit more aggressive on here. But I think we need the water qualities. I could take you to North Biscayne Bay where I grew up fishing sea trout and all these lush grasses. There's nothing there but mud. And it's, it's, it's just amazing what, what, what we're doing. It, it's, it's gotten bad. And these are just such important issues for us to be addressing. All right. I want to take advantage of your generosity and I want to give our listeners an opportunity to get some pro tips from one of the most renowned anglers and angler educators in the world. So let's play a speed round of George Povaromo's pro tips. I'm going to throw out some terms, some are fish, some are tactics, some are tactical and or, or ta yeah, tactics and some are tackle based. And you give us your number one piece of advice about that topic. We'll hit 10 topics if you're all right with that. And then we'll get to our wrap up stuff. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right, let's let's go with our first topic: high speed trolling for Wahoo. It's it definitely catches fish, but I like trolling at more traditional speeds. It's a very awkward deal to be pulling eighteen knots in the center console and outboard you because you're not right up on plane. Your boat is pushing, and you want to talk about burning fuel. And you could catch Wahoo at your traditional speeds, eight to ten knots in regular baits and still do well. You may not get all the numbers, but I tend to argue your larger fish will be caught on the, the more traditional ways. And I have trolling around 10 knots in the Bahamas, have caught 143 pound Wahoo. And also in the Bahamas, 110 pound, excuse me, 113 pound Wahoo, both were caught at that traditional eight to 10 knots and not the 18 and 19 knots. So uh, high speed uh, trolling for Wahoo is good for certain uh, anglers. I like traditional speeds. Excellent. And for those in the listening crew out there, if you want to hear the stories about those two Wahoo, they are available uh, with great picks on George Pavaromo's webpage because I was reading them last night. All right. Second topic fishing the marathon humps. That is a beautiful place when the sharks are not around. And you could fish that is easy as you want to make it or as difficult when i say difficult if you want to take the time and try to load the libels up and do the traditional live chumming where you you stem the current up current you, and you live chum and get the blackens up but they're so easy to catch by getting way up current on the drift sending down live pinfish if you don't have live bait you take a regular squid that you would pitch up for dolphin send two rods down one around 100 feet the other one down around 200 250 feet Put them both out with circles, put them in the rod holders, make your drift, come up on that hump, over the crown, off the back, pick up and keep repeating that. And you'll see those rods go down and you catch some of your biggest blackens that way. And it's easy fishing, two rods, you sit and you watch the rod. And if it's yours, you fight it. If your buddies, you get on the rod and enjoyable. And it's a mag it's a special spot when it's happening. Those big blackens are on the hump. Yeah, absolutely. I love black fins off the hump. All right. Number three. Fishing with butterfly jigs. Very intriguing. And, and you want to talk about evolutions. We grew up with basically three different styles jig. The arrow jig, then the bullet-shaped jig, and then the beanie jig. 
And we had to impart to make those jigs effective and catch fish. We were responsible for around 90% of those jigs actions, putting life into them to catch your kings, groupers, muttons. Now you come into the new generation of what I like to call our flutter style jigs. Whereas 90% of the actions are in the jigs. It's only 10% angler right now. And they, they each different model is weighted differently, off-balance weights to give them their own unique actions. And it's a pretty cool deal. It, it takes a little bit more getting used to than traditional tactics, especially when you do the slow pitch digging, but they work and they catch fish. It's, it's really something else. Yeah, and you mentioned that as part of the evolution and the effect that's had. We're also now seeing rods specifically designed for that slow pitch jigging as well. And so we're seeing whole new kind of tackle coming out around that idea of fishing those flutter jigs. And they were. We just did a, a, a show recently where we had gone in on the reefs and we were doing the actual uh, high speed jigging or high uh, pitch jigging in there. And uh, we were doing well in the muttons and it's, it's, a, it's an awkward kind of fishing. It, 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 you got to get used with the longer rods. And he, when you fight a fish, you have to pretty much fight it off the reel. It's, it's almost like learning to ride a bicycle again. Excellent. All right. So let's go to number four. Tell us about getting the best picture for you of your fish. Well, the best picture, if you really want to look, have an impressive looking fish is if I say, for example, I catch a 10 pound mutt snapper, I'm going to find the shortest person in my boat, let them hold that fish. And I'm going to take a picture. Does it make that 10 pound snapper look like a 15 pounder? So, but now that, that, that was me. I was a joke in there, but <laughs> anyway, it, the, the picture, it's, uh, I was learning or taught saltwater sportsman when I first came in. Two things. When you take a picture, make sure the horizon is dead even. And imagine if you put a ping pong ball on horizon. You don't want it to roll off one side or the other. That's crucial. The second crucial thing, and maybe first most, is focus on the fish's eye if you're still doing manual. You know, don't get the anger. Anger is not that important. People and fishing magazines and media they want to see the fish. So, you know, you focus on the fish's eye, make sure that's clear, that her, uh, level horizon's good, get that sun to your back, and, and then you have it. At least that's the way that I was taught. I think that's great advice. I think also um, I would add to that uh, our, our editor, Glenn Law, also told me to tell the person who's holding the fish to look at the fish to draw the attention of the viewer to the fish rather than looking at the camera. So focus on the eye and have the angler look at the fish. I, I True. And there are exceptions to that too. When you have an angler in your boat that really caught uh, one of the most impressive fish to date and you see the excitement level when they're freaking out, smiling at the camera, that's precious too, getting that moment. Yep, absolutely. All right. Subject number five, tell us the best knot to use instead of a bimini twist. Oh, uh, <laughs> if I'm ever doing that, it's going to be just your standard uh, eight wrap around knot that you're going to connect your lure to a leader with. Or actually, I would say the overhand loop knot, because that way we'll give that hook or leader a little bit more leadway or not the leader, but the hook or the lure more leadway to play around. But I do a bim and twist in nearly every single part of my fishing especially from the ultralight stuff for the notch strength to the big game stuff to me i might be lost without that bimini twist i had a feeling that's why i was asking i, I might you know i might have to give up fishing and go bowling instead <laughs> all right so you, you brought up blackfin when we were talking about the humps tell us your favorite lure for blackfin um uh, my favorite lure for blackfin would be 
because I noticed how you stacked that you made it lure. Because I would have, if you said baits, I'd have told you uh, differently. Uh, for lures, is the uh, Rapala uh, CD15. You get two Rapala CD15s, rig them to 30 pound fluorocarbon leader, and put them behind the boat and pull them around 10 knots or so stagger the distance and start working around the hump and those black fins tear that those lures right up excellent all right number seven give us a tip for deep drop fishing <clears throat> for deep drop now i'm a hand, hand crank deep drop guy now you know i i think the electric reel stuff and it's great if you're commercial fishing or you want to put fishing in a boat but i like the sport so hand crank deep drop and we'll play that level if you're going to go drop for tiles and say 650 on out to 900 feet is you make sure that you don't have any kind of a strong current out there. The lighter the current, the better, because you're going to want to try to get down to that bottom with the least amount of weight possible because you're going to have to winch that back up. And uh, for that, we use like an International 16 and the lighter braid, even smaller, we'll, we'll scale down to some of the, uh, the 15s. The trick to the deep drop and hand crank style is go with the lighter braid, go with 20 pound test braid or 30, it, smaller diameter, it's going to sink rapidly. And plus you're on an outfit that's not going to kill you. Where you get killed is cranking up that four pound or whatever weight that you're using. And ironically, when you hook a fish six, 700 feet down, you think that would kill, kill you. It won't because when you hook a fish that deep, there's not structure to get you. And it's not like trying to wrestle an amberjack away from wreck. You take your time, you keep tight, you wind down, keep tight, you lift up the fish makes you take it easy to bring it up so it's a relaxing pace whereas if you're going to move and do another drift where you got to hurry up and crank that four or five pound weight up that's what wears you out but uh lighter braid um very minimal of a current that you could stay over a power drift over a spot longer to try to get yourself some tile fish or you know barrel fish or anything like that excellent all right i'm probably uh probably opening up some controversy here but Number eight, I'm just going to say it, American Red Snapper. That is, you know, uh, it leaves you scratching your head because you go to some of these areas that are so abundant. And um, I, I don't get that one. I really don't. I think you could go the longer seasons and, I mean, maybe you could put some more restrictions, but let, let the people fish for them. You know, you know I'd be talking at turn here. I'd have to see how lopsided it might be for the commercial anglers versus the recreational anglers. You know, I just think it's, uh, that's, that's odd. But on that same note, um, speaking of controversial is I think we've got a major shark problem here and something has to be done with these sharks because they're so conditioned now. There's so many of them. We protected them so much and they're an apex predator. The only really uh, above them is, is humans. And we protected them that they're so overabundant that they just eat so many of our fish. And I'm, you know, I always said maybe it's a limited commercial reentry, not for the great migratory ones, but the bulls and the lemons that are doing so much of this damage. And then, you know, limited commercial reentry, you back off and do a stock assessment and then see. But it's out of control in some areas. Spots that we used to fish are so shark ridden now. That you don't even fish, you're feeding muttons to the sharks or the channel. Sometimes in the Bahamas, North Oswego Channel, you're feeding yellowfins to sharks. It's uh, it, it's it's tough. There's so many of them now. I'm hearing that from a lot of people. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with number eight still though, and get away from the the controversy in the sharks and ask you specifically about American Red Snapper. 
best way to fish for a red? Me, I like, well, it's, it's hard not to get overly excited when you're flutter jigging for them. I think that's a cool way. They're aggressive, and especially if they're they're plentiful, you know you're going to get drilled almost every every drop that you do. But there's some areas that you could get them chummed up behind the boat, like yellowtails at times, and you just see these snappers, and you just throw a bait back on top of it. You know, sight fishing for them basically when they come up is exciting too. But if I had to, you know, give you maybe one that I would stick, I like the jigging form. You know, that's like old school that we grew up on. We used to jig for the muttons and and the groupers and you're going back old school. Yep, absolutely. I what, love what, that. What, 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 what new shoes? Flutter jigs. <laughs> absolutely love that kind of fishing. All right, number nine, cold weather snook. Cold weather snook, they're really lethargic, and we're fortunate where I live in South Florida uh, compared to, say, the west coast of Florida, in that we are so close to the Gulf Stream in extreme South Florida, like Miami, where I grew up. <clears throat> that when you get these cold snaps and you get the ones that really, you know, will crush these snook is a lot of our snook divers say they see them out there on the reefs. So we have such access to deeper water that in those real severe fronts that a lot of these snook go out to the reefs where you get the influence from the warm Gulf Stream water that keeps the temperatures, you know, they're not going to get crushed out there where you look at the West coast, it's so far to get anywhere and they get trapped and, and that's where the issues go, but not making it that extreme, just regular wintertime fishing for snook. Some of the best ways to catch them that we like is we troll. We'll troll through the, uh, the inlet at night or super early in the morning or in Biscayne Bay, we'll troll lengthwise along some of the Bay bridges, you know, the Bay bridges, the shallow ones, you're using the uh, Rapala 15s and, the inlets, depending on how deep, like haul over CD18s, and it's a good way to nail those snook. They're stacked up, and you come by with that swimming plug near the bottom, and they, they drill it, and you just keep that boat going to get them away from the groins or turn away from the bridge. It's an exciting way to do it. It's, it's deadly effective, too, in the wintertime. Excellent. Great answer. All right, number 10, your favorite trolling spread for searching. Ooh. Uh, well, what we say – Spread and searching, that's almost like an oxymoron because when we search, is like when we're running and we're going for, for mahi and we see a little faint weed line, there's some baits in there and we're looking, man, this looks sort of good. Do we troll this? Do we put eight lines out? And we're not sure. We'll take two flat lines, a couple of value and put them behind the boat and we'll spend maybe 10 minutes dragging just a pair of flat lines because nothing's happening. We take them right up and we just haul. But if there's catching fish, then either we bring the school up or if it looks really promising, we put the full spread and work that area. So when we search troll, it's just two flat lines and we'll drag around an area just a little bit to, to see whether it's warranted that we go beyond that. Gotcha. Are you putting skirts on the valley or just going? I, you know, I, I went way old school and I, I'll, I'll pat myself on the back because I didn't say invented it, but I, I don't know anyone else who had done it at the time. Uh, 25, maybe 30 years ago, is trolling for dolphin or trolling offshore. The weeds are just so thick and scattered that you, you're snagging the weeds. So I thought, well, what if you rig a ballyhoo like a bass angler does a worm where the hook goes right back into the bait? So I did that and I put a teeny skirt in front of the ballyhoo. The hook was inverted back into the bait itself. And the value were weedless. 
So the past several seasons is I've been rigging up when I go dolphin fishing with weedless value. And you could troll these over the thickest of weeds. And, and sometimes they go over the top of a patch. It looks like some mouse running across the top of weeds. And you don't snag weeds. The trick is you invert the hook point back in the valley. You get a small squid skirt over the nose of the ballyhoo. And that acts sort of as a push. When it hits weeds, the skirt deflects it. And there's no point, be it a pin rig or a hook point, to snag the weeds. And so many people see these thickly scattered weeds. Oh, it's a mess to troll. I'm going to find some cleaner water. But if you have bait in there, you know the fish should be there. So we just troll in the thickest of weeds. We do the, I like the weedless value. Wow, I love that. That's great. I'm going to have to try that. All right, that was 10 pro tips from George Poveromo, and they were fantastic. I got to tell you, I could do this all day with you. I'd list you 100 questions and just listen to what you were saying. But, um, you know, actually, as you were talking, I was thinking one of the things I haven't mentioned are the six books you published, particularly the three you did with Mark Sosen, which really are, in my opinion, among the top how-to books for anglers right up there, you know, Vic Dunway's classics, bait, rigs, and tackle. But your books are also phenomenal things that we should have been talking about. And, you know, what you've just talked about are the kinds of things that serve the foundation for writing those books. So, uh, yeah, great stuff in your writing, too. Well, I appreciate it. And those were done exclusively for the seminar series because every person who attended the seminar would get the course textbook. So those were exclusive to uh, seminar series attendees over the uh, decades there. Ah, excellent. You can find them used on Amazon because I looked at them last night. So. <laughs> well, George, you've been more than generous with your time today. So I want to get to our traditional wrap-up question. And you've had the opportunity to fish in more places and catch more species of fish than most of us can even dream about. But I want to know, what's your grail fish? What's the bucket list fish for George Poveromo that's still out there waiting for you? Okay, well, that would be easy. That would be a spearfish. I've taken all the world's billfish species, except for a spearfish. And um, ironically, going back maybe 25 years ago, I took a buddy of mine out of haul over who wanted to get a sailfish over trolling. And here comes what I thought was a sailfish come up on the split tail mullet on the flat line. And as there's a sail, get it. He runs over, drops back, he misses it. And I said, bring that bait back up. He brings it up and here comes a small sailfish, eats it, let free sport, and he catches it. He cranks it right in and they think, all right, hey, got his first sailfish, 25 pounder, maybe 30 pounder. I reach down, I build it and I look, it's not a sailfish, it's a spearfish. And so he, we brought it in and he wanted to get it mounted. And so ironically, we got a spearfish on my boat, but I was the one who caught it. Now, had I known I was a spearfish, I would have knocked him out of there like a Miami Dolphins uh, football player. And I would have grabbed that rod. So that's the only one. But but it, it's not bothering me to the point where I had to make some concerted effort. Let's go and try this. I said, if it comes, it comes. And, and that's what it is. And, um, you know, you could go to Hawaii and go out there and get it. Certain times they'll have a, a decent run of them. But. I just think it'd be so cool to just to get that in your own hometown waters, trolling for dolphin, and that thing surprises you. So that would be the only one that I would be missing. And it's it doesn't bother me whether I get it or I don't. I'd love to get it, but it's not like it's going to, oh, well, here, I got to go to Hawaii for a month now and try that now. <laughs> what a fantastic idea, though. That's a, that's a great grail fish. 
George, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join me on the Rodcast today. And for all of you out there in my listening crew, if you think that you've learned a lot from George today, I really recommend you read his columns in Saltwater Sportsman, watch George Porvermo's World of Saltwater Fishing, and attend his seminars, buy his books, and I promise you that your fishing knowledge is going to skyrocket. George, with all sincerity, thanks for all you do for recreational fishing, for conservation, for angler education, and for taking the time to talk with me today on the Rodcast. Thanks so much. Hey, well, thank you. It was an enjoyable way to, to spend a Friday morning. Excellent. Thanks, George. All right, them hound dogs are reminding us to take a break from the fishing once in a while and to turn our noses to the other great part of life, bourbon. Oh, Whiskey River, take my mind. Don't let her memory torture me. Oh, Whiskey River, don't run dry. You're all I've got. Take care of me. Oh, I'm loving me some Willie today, or maybe I'm just mangling some Willie today, but we're not here to address my mangled Willie. We are here to talk about bourbon. Now, I have to admit at the outset that even this old piscatorial professor gets fooled once in a while. I picked up a bottle of bourbon the other day just because of the label. You'd figure an old bookworm like me would always invoke the adage of don't judge a book by its cover, but I saw that pretty label on the bottle of Kentucky Vintage Bourbon that just boasts a bourbony nostalgia, and I took that bottle home like it was a big-eyed puppy at the pound. I didn't even bother reading about the bottle's pedigree before cracking it open and making a heavy pour. And here's the scuttlebutt on Kentucky Vintage Bourbon. The stuff this old researcher should have looked at before doling out the 30 bucks for this bottle. Interestingly, the label on Kentucky Vintage does not identify the distiller producing this small batch bourbon, but a little of the old Google magic lets us know that Kentucky Vintage is sold by way of Willett Distilleries. And here's the thing, Willett has only been in the business since about 2013, so how is it that they're selling a bourbon that boasts being aged for as much as 10 years? Well, that's because clearly they're outsourcing their bourbon, so we don't really know where it's coming from. And since the label is pretty ambiguous, telling us that the whiskey is made in, quote, extremely limited quantities and was, quote, aged many long years, we don't really know much about the batching or the aging. And of course, they're packaging the bottle with a pretty label and a wax-covered cap, suggesting an older, traditional ethos. But like I said, I fell for the packaging and I bought a bottle, and boy, have I been disappointed. Now, when we drink bourbon, we expect the flavors to emerge throughout the experience. We expect even a kind of logic to the flavor changes, moving us through the experience. And if there's a logic to the flavor transitions, Kentucky Vintage flat out ignores it. Its taste progression is a non-sequitur palate experience. The nose of this spirit is thick, like a cross between waterlogged wood and skull menthol. And the menthol flavor carries over to the taste as well. In fact, it kind of lingers throughout the, durations, the duration of the drink's progress. At the start, there seems to be a slight sweet, nutty taste, but it never really gets established. But the wood and the menthol really dominate the whole experience. 
Now, if you know the history of that Greek wine, Retsina, you know that that wine got its unique flavor from being in casks using pine resin, leaving a distinct pine salt-like flavor to the wine. Well, Kentucky Vintage shares that resin-like flavor. It's almost like the distiller used a greener oak that wasn't charred well and then threw a urinal cake or a chunk of fat wood or lighter into the barrel before sealing it to age. The finish is bitter, like bitter herbs. Oh man, this is the whiskey of our affliction. This is going to make Seder a whole lot better at our house. This is the bitter herb I'll be serving along with our four glasses of wine. Elijah is going to dig my bad bourbon Seder. Look, even if you serve the Kentucky Vintage on the rocks with a splash, you cannot mask its bitterness. So let's put the Kentucky Vintage back on the shelf where it can look pretty and not insult our Cracker Jack sense of taste. Anyone who is sensible enough to go fishing when the opportunity arises ought to have the sense to avoid this rust remover masquerading as bourbon. All right, those are my thoughts on Kentucky Vintage. And before we go, as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all. And man, would they be pissed off today if they had. Though I am, of course, always open to sponsorship bribery extortion. These bourbons I review, I purchase out of pocket, and my reviews are based on my keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alleys, speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to Lillian's Music Store here in Gainesville, Florida, an iconic drinking establishment in town that prides itself on its drinking prowess. I love that place. So here's to the wind that blows, the ship that goes, and the lass who loves a fisher. As always, if you've got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Drink on, angling nation, and fish on, drinking nation. Okay, it is time for this week's top 10, and this week I want to take a look at my top 10 trolling lures for tuna. I am, however, leaving out plain skirts for running rig ballyhoo or strip baits, and I'm looking specifically at lures that can be run independent of any bait additions. Now, that doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't add strip baits or ballyhoo to some of these lures, but that they can be fished without. Also, keep in mind that there are about 15 species of tuna worldwide, and I certainly haven't fished for all of them, but I have had my fair share of many different tuna, and these are the lures that I've found to be most successful for tuna generically. Now, because of these parameters, though, I'm having to leave out some classic tuna lures, like the Cedar Plug, or to be a bit more brand specific, because these are the plugs I've used, I'm going to give nods to Gotcha Cedar Plugs and Sea Striker Cedar Plugs, which are great lures for casting to tuna. I have great memories of casting cedar plugs to false albacore or little tuny or bonita, depending on your regional nomenclature, from the beaches of North Carolina's outer banks and from the backs of boats. But these aren't really trolling lures as much as they are casting lures, so I'm not going to include them in this list. I am also leaving out jigs like Shimano's Butterfly Jig, which work great on tuna, but since these really aren't trolling lures either, I'm going to keep the list as consistent as possible. Oh, real quick, before I get into it, did you hear about the evil tuna? No? 
it was rotten to the albacore. <laughs> so in terms of trolling for tuna, here are my top 10. Okay, at number 10, I'm going to go with Hoagie's Pro Tail Tandem. Now, these are pre-rigged Hoagie tails rigged with a tandem 3X VMC tandem assist hook rigging. Now, of course, you can get Hoagie tails unrigged and rig them the way you like, but I like the convenience of the pre-rigged versions, particularly given the internal weight included on the tandem rigging eel or tandem rigged eel. I also have to say that I found the black color to be great for targeting blackfin tuna nearer shore. Now, a lot of you will probably immediately think of hoagies as being great tarpon lures, which they are, but trust me when I say they make very reliable blackfin lures as well. Okay, at number nine, I'm going to go with Yozuri's Bonita. This is a great lure with a lot of history that's been revamped to even be more effective. The Yozuri Bonita is a high-speed trolling lure that is rigged with two flat-forged stainless steel hooks that are about as rugged as you'll find on a trolling lure. They come in two sizes, a six and three-quarter inch and an eight and a quarter inch. Both models have great tight wobbling action. They are available in seven color options, but these colors are part of Yozuri's color change lure design, which means the colors look different depending on what angle you or the fish are looking at the lure. It's a really great trolling lure. I've had some excellent skipjack catches on these lures, and so that's my number nine. At number eight, I'm going with Williamson Flash Feather Rig Trolling Lures. These are great trolling lures that use a classic feather tail design. And they're ideal for smaller tuna species like blackfin and skipjack that I was just talking about. They come in lengths of three, four, and five inch models, and they're available in four color patterns. Each model is pre-rigged with an equivalent size hook, the three inch with a two-aught, the four inch with a three-aught, and the five inch with a five-aught. These are one of those trolling lures that work great on their own or with added strip mate. They work best at a slower or moderate trolling speed, say from around seven, or from three to seven knots. Okay, at number seven, I'm going to go with Savage Gear's 3D Swim Squid. This realistic-looking squid is designed based on 3D scans of live squid. When trolled, the two-part body has great swimming action with lots of movement in the tentacles and the pulsing of the body fins. These squids are available in four sizes, ranging from a great little castable 3 and 5 8 inch model up to a solid trolling version at 10 inches. I really like the seven inch version for tuna trolling. They come in six color variations and the TPE plastic these lures are made from is really tough and will last a long time even after many, many strikes. Okay, I have got the Boone Turbo Hammer sitting in the number six spot this week. I love the bubble trail this lure leaves. It's best trolled at slower to moderate speeds of say two to 10 knots. I know that's a big range, but like other lures in this list, it can be fished with added strip baits or independently. This is a five and a half inch lure that comes pre-rigged with six aught stainless hooks and Suffolk 130 pound mono. All in all, a very reliable tuna lure. Okay, and number five, I've got the ever reliable Island Islander Junior, which is pair, a pared down version of the bigger Islander uh, lure. And that's I-L-U-R-E, so Islander I-L-U-R-E. The nylon skirt on these lures have great visibility and are really rugged. The added mylar outer layer of the skirt brings a lot of flash and visibility to the Islander Junior. The bullet head on this lure makes the lure ideal for faster trolling speeds, and they come in about eight color vary op uh, options. 
Okay, at number four, we have got CNH's lure, Stubby Bubbler. This is a classic tuna lure that is actually a hybrid design bringing together CNH's little stubby head and their little bubbler. This lure has one of the best bubble trails of any trolling lure out there. And a lot of that is because the stubby bubbler head has an additional hole in it or several holes in it to pull more airflow and release more bubbles in its wake. I also appreciate the Mylar versions that have added flash in the skirt. This is a short trolling lure at five and a half inches. It can be rigged with strip bait, ballyhoo, cigar minnows, or run independently just as effectively. You can get them unrigged or there are rigged versions, which again, out of sheer convenience, I usually prefer to have. Okay, sitting at number three, I've got a newer addition to the U.S. lure market, and that's Chase Bait's The Ultimate Squid. This is an incredibly lifelike lure. Its one-piece design is solid as hell. It's not a hollow body like a lot of other squid imitators out there. It is solid, 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 but made from a really soft plastic. The lure swims like a real squid. It really is amazing to watch in the water. Chase Bates also has the ultimate squid rig harness for rigging these incredible lures. The harness comes in weight variations for a quarter, half ounce, three quarter ounce, and one ounce. The harness comes rigged with flash blade, but you can switch the blade out for a stinger hook, which I find a useful switch. And the ultimate squid comes in six color variations. All right, so that brings us to the runner-up for this week's top 10 tuna lures. And in that position, I've got Billy Bates Tuna Witch. This is a high-speed trolling lure recommended at those top-end higher speeds of 8 to 20 knots. The body design of this lure is designed to mimic a ballyhoo. I love the design of the heads on these lures. They're chrome-plated brass and come in two sizes, a 5.5 ounce and a 13.5 ounce. They run straight and can be fished in the front or rear of your spread, just as equally as effective in either position. I will admit the tuna witch, which are a bit pricey, are really worth the money when targeting tuna. I also think these are great for high-speed high trolling for Wahoo as well. And that brings us to my number one favorite tuna trolling lure. But before we get to that, let me quickly remind you that you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. Actually, do you know how to tune a fish? Raise or lower the scales. So a quick recap leading to our number one. At number 10, we've got Hoagie Pro Tail Tandem. At number nine, the Yozuri Bonita. At number eight, Williamson Flash Feather Rig Trolling Lures. At seven, the Savage Gear 3D Swim Squid. At number six, we've got Boone's Turbo Hammer Tuna Lure. At five, we've got Islander Junior, the Tuna Lure. At four, we've got Stubby Bubbler Tuna Lure. At three, Chase Bates Squid. At two, Billy Bates Tuna Witch. And that brings us to number one. But real quick, before we get to number one, do you know how to communicate with a tuna? Just drop it a line. That's right, dad jokes all day and all night because I am dad to the bone. And my number one tuna lure is Nomad Designs DTX Minnow. The DTX Minnow is a great hard body trolling lure. These are deep diving lures that run really straight. I love the design of the big bill that keeps them running at depth and in line. I like that DTX Minnow. It's as effective at slower trolling speeds down around four or five knots as they are at faster speeds around 14 knots. Now the DTX Minnow comes in four sizes, a four and a half inch floating version, a five and a half inch floating version, a six and a half inch sinking version, and an eight inch sinking version, as well as a Mondo nine inch sinking version. 
It's that eight inch sinking version that I really like to use a lot, but I'd love to run the six and a half inch version for black fin and the nine inch for bigger tuna like yellow fin and blue fin. Now there are 14 color options. And if you haven't seen Nomad Design's take on traditional redhead with their fireball redhead, you need to see this pattern. It's like a flame job on a 1933 Ford Coupe hot rod that's been dunked in that same chemical tank that turned Jack Napier into the Joker. And yes, the original DC Comics, the Joker was named Jack Napier, not Arthur Fleck like it was in the Joaquin Phoenix version. But no matter, the Nomad Design Fireball Redhead is high freaking energy color scheme. And all of the color patterns in Nomad Design's palette are right there with it, looking to amp up the visual characteristics of these top-tier tuna trap and tackles. All right, that wraps up my top 10 trolling tuna lures. But you deserve a bonus. So quick question. Do you know why tuna don't play basketball? because they're afraid of the net. No? Don't like that one? One more. Okay, how about it? A tuna fish sandwich walks into a bar and the bartender says, get out. We don't serve food here. Really? That's how you're going to respond to that? Okay, one more. One of my kids' favorites. The man walks into an ice cream shop and asks, do you have tuna ice cream? The guy scoops ice cream. The guy who's scooping the ice cream, he just stares at him and he goes, uh, no. The next day, the same dude walks back into the ice cream shop and asks again, do you have tuna ice cream? Same confused answer. No. On the third day, he does it again. Do you have tuna ice cream? No. But the guy behind the counter has had enough. So he gets a can of tuna and he throws it into the ice cream maker and he makes a batch of tuna ice cream and he is ready. So sure enough, the next day, the same guy walks back into the ice cream shop and asks, do you have tuna ice cream? And this time behind the guy behind the counter, he's ready. And he replies, Yes, sir, we do. Would you like one scoop or two? And the guy asks him, you really have tuna ice cream? Yes, sir. The man replies, oh, that's disgusting. Ha! All right, that does it. Top 10 done and done. As always, if you think I've missed a great tuna lure or a great tuna joke, drop me a line. Ha, 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 drop me a line at Sid at InventiveFishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, send me an email, and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And that's the top 10. We are 10 and done. Well, that brings us to the end of another great episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I can't thank George Pomeromo enough for taking the time to talk with us today, and I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I also hope you learned as much from it as I did. I really encourage you to attend one of the seminars that Mr. Pomeromo puts on if you have the chance. Okay, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The hook needs sharpening. I say again, the hook needs sharpening. And that just about brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode coming up next week, and I hope you'll give a listen when it drops. Remember, new episodes drop every Wednesday. As always, please be sure to share the Fishing Professor Rodcast with everyone you know. In fact, share it with people you don't know, too. It's a great conversation starter. Just walk up to someone you don't know and say, hey, do you listen to the Fishing Professor Rodcast? 
If they say yes, buy them a drink and talk fishing with them because they're your kind of people. If they say no, duct tape them down and play them the episodes until they can answer yes. If they start kicking and screaming, do the same thing. It'll confuse the hell out of them. As always, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms that you use to listen to the broadcast. Hey, be sure to check out the Inventive Fishing webpages and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. I'll be back next week with another cool episode. And until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!